to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rio with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is Lisa Baker, who is a full-time health coach and nonprofit consultant, self-published author, blogger, and woefully underpaid COO of a busy family of four. Ain't that the truth? But today, we're going to talk about taking care of your health for busy nonprofit executives, because as we all know, that usually falls to the very long bottom of the list. So welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Lisa, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to the nonprofit world. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked that because if you were to ever see my CV, you'd be like, okay, this woman is either completely unemployable or she can do anything. (laughs) So believe it or not, I started out teaching foreign language. I started out teaching Russian and Mandarin Chinese. And then when I met my husband, who is from China, we recognize that, you know, if we're going to be together, we're going to have, one of us is going to have to leave the field because it's very hard to get a job in the same place, especially in the same university. So you very often see academic couples who are in the same field have to do some kind of crazy commuter marriage kind of thing, which is funny if you know that my husband just moved to Hong Kong and we're doing an international commuter marriage. I think that'll save your marriage, friend. (laughs) So... We're doing it on the the tail end of our marriage as opposed to the beginning, like so many young couples who have to start out that way. But it was a very conscious decision to leave that, to leave teaching foreign language. And I went back to waitressing just because I thought, well, I know this, I can make good money. And then I realized like, you know, I should have been in food all along, but I didn't want to be in the service side of things. I wanted to be in the production of it. And as a woman, I also knew that restaurant work was insanely difficult. So wasn't headed in that direction. And so I went to culinary school, became a caterer, had a business for a few years in Chicago, and then we had kids. And catering and kids don't really mix that well because you really have to be available to your clients when your kids and family want you, like nights, weekends, holidays. So I left that and went to do a lot of administrative work, starting out in a church, working in a university setting, and then ultimately landing in an organization that brought me back to food, but from a social justice angle. It's an organization in Ann Arbor that works at the intersection of sustainable agriculture, food systems, social justice, really all about getting fresh produce onto the plates of people who are on SNAP, which is what food stamps are now called. So it was really lovely to find that job because it just, it fit a lot of my, it it fed a lot of my own passions, which are food and social justice. (laughs) And I ended up doing a lot of administrative work and then a lot of grant writing, development, fundraising kind of stuff for them. And ultimately just recognized that I still wanted to be doing something with food and yet it was not really feeding my soul anymore to be writing grants. (laughs) So I got certified as a health coach because I started recognizing that, you know, the food we put in our mouths is very important, but the the so-called primary foods, the, all the other things in our lives that nourish us or don't are just as important. So I became a health coach and I was still, and I still do nonprofit consulting and some grant writing and management. And I suddenly realized that, huh, funny thing, as weird as those two worlds are, like coaching and the nonprofit sector sound 
kind of different. Some of my most successful clients have been women in nonprofits. And I think that really made me sit up and take notice because like I said, if you look at my CV, you'll be like, what, what does all this have to do with the other things on here? Right, right. So it was sort of a nice revelation that, oh, these two things are connected in this way. I am really passionate about getting health coaching to those who need it most. And health coaching really is viewed as sort of a high-end luxury item. And so a lot of people in the nonprofit sector don't think about it as something accessible to them. So it's been an interesting journey. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about what health coaching means. Like, I've heard you talk about food, but then other sort of lifestyle changes. So like briefly, can you walk us through like, what does a health coach actually do for someone? Sure. Health coaching is really a hugely growing field. And what you'll see if you Google the word is that there are all kinds of people calling themselves health coaches and they're very different. And nobody really owns that word. There's no real definition for it yet. Although there are a lot of health coaching programs that are starting to clamor for you know, a professional exam certification. And so that's hopeful because there are some some people who call themselves health coaches who, you know, go for a weekend training for some sort of an, an MLM style product, and then they start calling themselves a health coach. And, you know, that's fine. I have nothing against things like supplements and essential oils. And at the same time, I'm like, well, you know, a weekend being trained by the person by by the company that is going to benefit from you doing well is it's kind of need need a little third party for a verification there. <laughs> so a health coach really is, from my perspective, it's someone who helps you to reach your health goals. And the most important thing there is that it's goals you, you need to set goals that are right for you. So a huge principle of integrative nutrition, which is what I practice, is that we are bio-individual. And if you look around, you'll see a lot of people suddenly into keto. And part of it is, oh, you know, my best friend became keto and, and she lost all this weight and she looks great and I'm doing it and it's not working for me. And that's because we are all individual. So really, I like to think about a health coach as, as we say, we're like a guide on the side instead of the sage on the stage. I'm immediately a little suspicious of a health coach who says, you know, everybody should be vegan. Everybody should be paleo. Everybody should do this kind of workout. You know, if if they're coming to it with an agenda and that's what you want to achieve, that's great. But if you're going into it thinking, I really need to get healthy and I'm not sure how to do it, then you want to look for someone who's going to say, well, what feels right to you? Mm -hmm. If you want to become vegan, let's try it for a few weeks. I can help you do that. Let's, Let's have you be vegan for a few weeks, but then let's think about how you feel. Is it working for you? Great. This will work for you for a while. If it's not working for you, let's think about, you know, maybe adding some eggs or some fish. So it all starts out with really talking about food. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) I usually work with people for about 12 sessions, around six months time. And I tell you, after two sessions, it is never about the food. It's about how their relationship with food got to Mm. Yeah. And what happens there is everything else in your life is what leaks into your relationship with food. Oh, I know. Well, it's so funny because I think I was just talking the other day about fundraising, as I do, Mm. and about our emotional relationship to money. Yes. (laughs) But I think we also probably have emotional relationships with food. So 
Let's talk a little bit about the busy nonprofit executive in self-care. So I think there's been a trend in the last couple of years, which I really applaud, about thinking about holistic self-care. And, you know, I think it's hard to lead well if you don't feel good. Yet, I also think for most busy executives, it's a kind of do as I say, not as I do. And so why do you think it is that so many nonprofit professionals burn themselves out and, you know, they're not eating well, they're not sleeping well, they're not exercising and so forth? Yeah, that's a great question. From my perspective, and you'll have to excuse me because I I deal predominantly with women. So there will be information in here for men as well. But usually when I talk about people in nonprofits, and there's a good reason for this, 75% of the labor force of nonprofits is women. And we lead 30 to 57% of those nonprofits depending on size. So, yes. Lisa, that is a whole other conversation. I know. I I know. know. I know. And and I want to say that for me, in some ways, it is a women's rights issue. Because if you look at the women who are working in nonprofits, particularly in leadership, many of them are over 40. Many of them return to the workforce and do something that they are passionate about because they have a partner or a spouse, you know, a husband, whoever, who has a job that includes benefits. So you don't really have to think about the benefits. You can do what you're passionate about. You might even, like, I was lucky enough to work part-time in a nonprofit when my kids were small. And you think, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to have all this flexibility until you realize that flexibility means, yeah, you're you're welcome to go home at three o'clock so you can pick your kids up, but then you're going to get on the, the computer again for another three hours. Yeah, know? I was going to say, there is no such thing as a part-time nonprofit. No, job. no, no, no. <laughs> so when you think about working in the nonprofit sector and ultimately sitting down and figuring out how many hours you're putting in and are you making a living wage, that is like a whole different soapbox. It really, for me, is a women's rights issue. But going back to your original question, I think we tend to burn out because our work is mission-driven. There's something we're passionate about that we want to do. So we're willing to work a little bit longer. We're willing to get paid a little less because we're making a difference in the world. And what happens is when you think about succeeding in the corporate world, you make a profit, you might get a bonus. If you fail in the corporate world, you don't make a profit, you don't get your bonus. In the nonprofit sector, you have this incredible added pressure, which is if you succeed, things go really well. You are making a difference in the world. If you fail at your job or you're struggling because you're burned out, then you know a child could go hungry, a teenager could commit suicide, an older person dies alone, a business fails to thrive. You know, just like that added pressure, I think, is like going from the frying pan into the the fire, <laughs> or from mm-hmm. the frying pan into the instapot. You know, right. <laughs> where where the the amount of pressure put on people in the nonprofit sector is way more than what people in the corporate world deal with. And so that tendency to feel like, well, if I don't do this, who's going to do it? I don't have time to take care of myself. I'll take care of myself when dot, dot, dot. I'll I'll start working out after the holiday season, which is our biggest fundraising season. I'll start eating well when this big gala is over. And it's just a constant putting yourself on the back burner, even more so than we do anyway. 
especially as women, which is, you know, we, we tend to be the nurturers, the caregivers, and that's in part why we're drawn to nonprofit work. Yeah, it's so funny as you're talking because I, I really remember moments when I was an executive director and it would be like four o'clock and it would be like, I feel terrible. Why? And then it would be like, oh, because I haven't eaten all day. I haven't had any water and I haven't gone to the bathroom all day. And I so didn't I, sleep last night. <laughs> Don't forget yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, no wonder I feel like crap. And I think the important thing to notice is that, you know, as we put ourselves on the back burner and start burning out, that affects our performance at work. It, you know, For sure. Absenteeism, presenteeism, all those issues of burnout. Burnout was actually originally coined to talk about stress that goes unmanaged in the workplace, specifically for people who are in quote unquote helping professions. So it's huh. fascinating to see how you know burnout has really been adopted by the corporate world. And it was originally much more about doctors, nurses, nonprofit workers. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, the interesting thing about being an executive and experiencing burnout as well is I think there's an unspoken expectation that people are watching what you do and then emulating it. So as much as I was like, yeah, you guys should definitely, you know, take care of like self-care, take a mental health day if you need it. I'm not going to do that. Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to keep grinding. Yes. But you guys go ahead and do it. And and so the unspoken expectation was like, even though the words were coming out of my mouth that were the right things, they weren't actually seeing me take care of myself and therefore thought that the way to get ahead was to act the way that I was acting. Absolutely. Do as I say, not as I do. So if you tell someone, I'm I'm totally down with you taking your lunch break to go work out, but you're working through lunch, eating sort of al desco, as they say. What are you? What are you really saying as the leader of this organization? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and look, let's also talk about this. Hangry is really a thing, right? <laughs> I made better decisions when I actually had food. <laughs> like yes, yes. And when you're the person in charge of the budget, you probably better be making good decisions. <laughs> I know, I know. It's so true. So let's talk about that. You know, as I say, every strength has a dark side. So do you think that the empathy of being a mission driven person also tends to make your make you into a martyr? Yes. <laughs> yes. Let's just stop there. I think that it really is sort of two sides of the same coin. And there's a light side and a dark side. And you know, the light side is yes, you are this empathetic individual who works in something they're passionate about and you are able to do really a lot of good in the world. The flip side of that is we do tend to feel like, well, I'm the only one who can do this. And if I don't do this, who is going to do this? <laughs> and then and then it really becomes, I'll stay up late, I'll skip meals, I'll, you know, put myself at the very end of the of the care list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of meals, the mistake that I always made is like I would go, I would like skip breakfast, skip lunch and realize around three o'clock that I had <laughs> like eat way too much. It, went, it was just like a bomb in my stomach. It was yes. like, okay. Yeah. 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 And that's something that, you know, as a health coach, I really work with my clients on is, you know, if you are exhausted, let's start with you know, what's your diet like? What are you eating? Are you, you know, is coffee the first thing to hit your stomach in the morning? And do you eat breakfast? And if you do eat breakfast, how do you feel around 10? 
are you exhausted? Are you crashing? Do you, do you need something more to eat? And what about after lunch? Are you fine until dinner time, Or do you suddenly find that I had a I had a colleague at my nonprofit job who every afternoon at about three would be like, oh, I just got to bite something. <laughs> but it really is something that I work on with people because we sort of accept it. We sort of, you know, we have lunch, we don't eat what's the best choice. And then after like at two or three, we're like, God, I need a cup of coffee. Why am I crashing? So let's go back and look at why. We don't ask that enough. We just accept that, oh, I'm crashing. I need a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. So what I work on with people around their food is let's find a way for you to eat that isn't going to make you crash. So I do something called like the breakfast experiment, which is, you know, for a week, why don't you just eat oatmeal for breakfast? And then don't tell me how many calories you ate and what the proteins and carbs are. Tell me how you felt an hour after you ate it, two hours after. Were you able to get until lunch? Okay, if you're starving at 10 o'clock, let's think about try eggs for a week. Or try adding, you know, some some fat and protein to your oatmeal, some nuts, some fruit, you know, and then really finding like, wow, I can get from breakfast to lunch without having to eat my way through the day. Mm -hmm. The other component, of course, is, you know, cravings can be something very different from I'm hungry. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, my staff always had to have emergency chocolate stashed around the office. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) You know, sometimes when like the grant proposal was going or like I got a bad phone call and come out and be like, I need some emergency chocolate, like break the, break the glass, the emergency chocolate needs to come <laughs> out right the now. Glass. I love that. My boss at the nonprofit where I worked most recently was really funny because we were submitting our first really huge USDA proposal and he's like, okay, we're down to the wire. Tell me what you need from me so, so you can get this in on time. And I looked at him, I'm like, coffee and chocolate. And I came in that day that it was due and there was like this big ass bar of chocolate and a big cup of coffee. <laughs> Listen, you got to do what you got to do. You got to do it. Yep. <laughs> you know, but something that you said really resonated with me as well, which is being conscious about how you're feeling. Because I think so often we, we just like get into this mode of like, go, 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 do, 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 that we don't actually think about not just what we're putting in our mouths, but also the speed at which we're putting it in our mouths and the people that we are sitting with while we're doing it. So, I mean, I'm guilty as charged, like Mm, number one, like offender of like sitting at my desk, like shoveling down food from whatever like takeout place, you know, downstairs because it was easy and like getting on a phone call. Yeah. Yeah. Like, feels kind of terrible, actually. It does feel kind of terrible. And I want to bring it right back to when we think about, you know, you might want to call it food journaling or, you know, tracking your food, whatever it is. We're very used to sliding into nutritionism, which is like, how many calories did I eat? How many carbs? How much protein? How many many grams of fat? You know, that kind of thing. And we're not very concerned with how we feel after we eat it. So when, you know, when clients come to me and they want to quote unquote fix what it is they're eating, my first suggestion is let's not think about counting all those things. Let's just think about really getting out of your head and into your body and noticing how do you feel after you eat this. And the same goes for all those other things, which we call primary foods, which is, you know, how do you feel when you are with this person? How do you feel when you do this workout? How do you, you know, we're so used to looking to others to tell us how to work out, how to eat, 
how to be, what our relationships should look like. And I joke that there are like two main words we need to look out for. One is should. If you should be doing something, whose should is that? Because ultimately we end up doing what I call shooting all over ourselves. <laughs> and very often it is not our should. It's right. our vision of you know, how we were raised, like what I should be like as a woman, as a wife, as a mother, rather than what feels right for me. And it's exactly what we were talking about. You know, there's so much judgment from people around me about how I choose to have this bizarre international commuter marriage, but like it works for me. And, you know, whose place is it to say that it's not the way to have a relationship? Or, you know, I like to say that when we slip into should, very often we're thinking about self-care in terms of what Cosmo tells us to do. And if we're going to really focus on what we, quote unquote, should be doing, we need to tune into what the Cosmos is telling us to do rather than, than you know, the magazines, the friends, the doctor, whatever. We need to get back in touch with our bodies and what our bodies are trying to tell us. Yeah, I think that that's so true. Talk a little bit too about the social aspect of being healthy because so just a little bit of context. I once did, I had a work assignment in Brazil where I was doing a presentation to Brazilian nonprofit and I had like a, you know, a typical American schedule like, okay, we're going to start at this hour, like boom, 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 boom. We're going to go all the way through. I'll give you half an hour for lunch, you know, and then we'll like go through all the way till six. And they looked at the schedule and they were like, where is the coffee break? And I was like, <laughs> Where's the bio break? <laughs> well, no, but the coffee break, like they literally, they take half an hour in the morning and half an hour in the afternoon as a whole office and they all stop working and they have a coffee break and they bring in like a nice treat, like padakeja. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, oh, and also you didn't give us enough time for lunch. Cause like, I'm like a New Yorker. I'm like half an hour is like so much time. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and they're like, no, we need a minimum of two hours for lunch. And I was like, excuse me. What? <laughs> and so they all, but as a group, they all go out to a restaurant together and they sit down with their colleagues and they have like a proper lunch with like tablecloths and the whole thing. And it takes two hours. And you know, I thought I was like both horrified and fascinated. I was like, what do you mean? That's so much time. And I was also like, but it's really nice to be able to like sit with your colleagues and have a proper meal that you're not shoveling down at your desk. Yeah. That's so interesting. You bring that up. The place I worked most recently, when we started out in the office, there were only three of us and we had no microwave. And it was a very conscious decision on the CEO's part not to have a microwave because he didn't want people just like, shoving food in there, heating it up and going back to their desks and eating. And so it became a much more intentional exercise, like, oh, I have to plan ahead, like 15 minutes to heat up my lunch. And then, you know, while I'm doing that, maybe I'll just stay back there and see who else is eating. <laughs> and it was fascinating to watch as, as the organization grew, we had a COO come in who was just like, oh, no, we're going to have a microwave. <laughs> And it was so interesting to watch because it really became a very different culture. And I'm not putting it all at the feet of the microwave. I'm just observing that, you know, when it was a conscious decision, it was much easier as you were talking about before, like, oh, this is what you're modeling as a leader. And if you are modeling that you're not taking care of yourself, then nobody else is going to take care of themselves either. 
And it's, it's just really, it's funny too, because that's a question I get a lot from people is like, microwaves, do you use a microwave? Are they good for you? Or are they bad for you? It's like, I like to think about food in terms of energetics, which is very sort of traditional Chinese medicine approach being that, you know, food has its own innate properties about is it heating? Is it cooling? Is it drying? Is it, you know, does it provide dampness or dryness, whatever. But the added part of that is, you know, how are you cooking that food? Because for me, I think the jury is still very much out on are microwaves good for us or not. But I do think that when you think about what a microwave does to your food, it is making those molecules vibrate so fast that that's the energy you're taking in. And you know, if you look, and this might be a total not causation at all, but if you look at the rate of increased microwave usage and the increase in attention deficit disorder, it's pretty striking. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. <laughs> I hadn't ever considered that. These but kids who are bouncing off the walls and grownups as well, <laughs> you know, a lot of them are eating food that's heated up in the microwave. Like yeah. hmm, something to think about. It may be totally not true. And yet, who's to say? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think too, there's something about eating food that has been made with love and care, yes. you know, yep. and when you're picking up something from the takeout place down the street, it's not necessarily, I mean, it's food, but I think there's something about the energy that's put into the food and the preparation of it. Yes. And that's something that I talk about a lot with my clients when we're talking about food, which is, you know, we, we're at a certain level of privilege anyway, we are all familiar with the idea of, oh, I'm going to eat seasonally, I'm going to eat organically, I'm going to eat, eat locally. The one element people don't think about much is the ethical part of that, which is like, who touched your food on its way to your plate? And did everyone who engaged with your food, whether it was planting, picking, processing, packing, whatever, did they do it with love? Because you can bet that someone who is not being paid a, a living wage is just trying to do stuff as fast as they can. And, and, you know, they are providing food for me and yet they can't feed their own families. It's kind of like, wow, I'm sure they're not really invested in putting much love into my food. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. We should have a whole other conversation about like food, oh, yeah. <laughs> ethics, and social justice. Because actually I've, I've changed the way that I've eat, that I eat over the last two years. I've always been pretty good about vegetables and such, but I've made a switch to pescatarianism over the last two years because of my commitment to animal mm -hmm. ethics, yeah. even though I love red meat. I mean, <laughs> literally, like I could eat a raw steak right now. Yeah. <laughs> but I have ethically decided that I, you know, cannot any longer support eating animals. I mean, I guess fish are animals, but mammals. I don't eat mammals right. anymore. Mm -hmm. So Lisa, we are here on Nonprofit Lowdown and talk about actionable things. So what are some actionable things that the listeners can do? I mean, you talked about food journaling. What are some other things that folks can do to start taking steps towards becoming healthier? Yeah. I think from sort of the, the mile high perspective, I like to talk about this process as having the acronym EAT, which is engage. Like the E is just engage. Get back into your body. Engage with your inner wisdom. And the second one is once you've engaged with your inner wisdom and you know, like, I love that you brought up, you know, I have committed to pescatarianism because these are my values. 
once you have that value, you can align your choices with that. So that's the A. So you're going to engage your inner wisdom. You're going to align your choices with your values that you discovered from your inner wisdom. And the final step is to transform. And this is where the really actionable steps come in. I don't know whether you've read James Clear and Charles Duhigg on habits and habit mm. forming and just mm-hmm. some great, great writing about habits. But the T is for transform. That is where we are going to start making these tiny little baby steps. And I love to talk about this with people in the nonprofit sector because we are so used to writing grant proposals. And when you think about when you write a grant proposal, the questions are always the same. What's your vision, mission, history, right? So that's the part where you're engaging, right? You're thinking about what do I want to accomplish in my life, with my health, in my relationships, in my career, whatever. And then the next question is always like, what are the goals? What are the objectives that you want to get to? So that's where we set the really big goal. Like, you know, I'm going to lose 30 pounds in six months, just to use a really simple analogy. And then you break that goal down into objectives. So, you know, if I'm going to do that in six months, here's where I need to be in three months. Here's where I need to be in two, in one. And then the step that so often doesn't get taken care of is break it down even more and think about what can I do this week? That is going to be such a small step that it's practically painless, right? I I like to tell my clients, it should feel like a pinprick and not like a sledgehammer. Because if you are a couch potato and you tell me that this week you're going to start exercising five days a week for 30 minutes, I'm going to pretty much say, nope, that's not going to happen. I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. (laughs) But if you say to me, I'm going to walk three lunch hours, I'm going to walk for 10 minutes. Okay. That's probably pretty painless. So what I like to talk about is don't just set the goal. Think about the objectives and then think about, you know, we're back to the grant proposal where you have to provide a timeline of activities. So those activities, first of all, have to be really small and they can be anything like add a glass of water before every meal, add a green salad before lunch and dinner, add some vegetables to your breakfast. What? (laughs) (laughs) So the the steps have to be really, really tiny, and then you have to be able to layer them on. So, you know, if you can drink three extra glasses of water this week, can you do five next week? Can you add a salad twice a day? And then just keep those habits in place and keep adding to them. Because let's be honest, if you if you are going to suddenly go from zero to a hundred, it's not going to be sustainable. So it it really, the biggest piece of advice I have about what, what can you do? It's break your journey up into the tiniest steps you can imagine. Yeah, that's helpful. Actually, that reminds me of a podcast interview I did with Laura Wolf about behavioral design and how you set up your context to succeed. So they're all about trying to influence people's behaviors to improve their outcomes. So like health behaviors, for example. like So I would imagine something like, I don't know, cleaning out the junk food in your house might, might be <laughs> yes, a helpful for- your office. <laughs> yeah, but you can't get rid of the emergency chocolate because no, that's not, yeah, that's you, not you like that. But what, yeah. what I'm thinking about is the place where I worked most recently had this place called The Trough. And it was literally where everybody would dump stuff that, oh, you know, I went out and I bought a huge bag of chips. Well, I'm just going to have a little, but I'll leave the rest in the trough. And it's like, okay, that's fine for you because you have willpower, but I don't. 
So it's like, do you have a trough in the office? If you do, then either clean it out, close it down, or think about what you're putting in it. Because ultimately at that organization, what we decided was anything that goes in the trough has to be has to align with our values. So it has to be seasonal, organic, local, ethical. And boy, I tell you, that cuts down on stuff really fast because it's dang expensive to eat that way. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I have a, one of my very good friends works for a tech company and, you know, it's just nonstop food everywhere. Mm-hmm. And she's like, yeah, it's a problem because everyone brings in, you know, the cupcakes and the pies and the cakes. And then it's like, I can't even, if it was there, I will probably put it in my mouth. Yeah. Same here. Yep. <laughs> I had a client recently tell me, she's like, yeah, I'm at that point where I'm, I'm eating anything that moves more slowly than I do. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think really creating that, building your environment to support your success is huge because especially as parents, you know, as women who have to do the cooking, we think constantly about, well, I should have this in the house because my son likes to eat it. My daughter likes to eat it. My husband has to have it. And if it's around, I'm going to eat it too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, is there a way we can figure out for you to eat in a way that supports you while you can still provide food for your family? One last question, because I want to circle back on something you said earlier about our emotional connection to food. And I often think, you know, the term comfort food exists because it's a thing. And I'm just wondering, you know, given that many nonprofit execs have very stressful jobs, do they turn to food as a release, as a comfort in a life where there maybe just isn't enough outlet for that. Yes. And I think that a really interesting exercise, and this is not a simple actionable step, it's more like a big question I want to leave people with is if you have a, let's call it strange, or if you have a very specific relationship with food, think about how you show up in the kitchen or at the table as compared to how you show up in the rest of your life. And I'll give you a story to explain what I mean by that, which is my kids are sort of polar opposites in everything. And if you watch my daughter at a buffet, let's say Thanksgiving, you know, she will take a little bit of everything, even the stuff she doesn't like, and she'll work her way from what she likes the least to what she likes the best. My son will pile everything on his plate and start with dessert. Well, guess which one? is really good at postponing pleasurable activities when there's work to be done. My daughter can do all the homework in the world before she'll even think about doing something quote unquote fun. And my son will come home and toss his backpack on the chair and be like, okay, I'm out, I'm going fishing. It's like, uh, how about that homework? Oh, it'll get done. And it's just striking when you think about, wow, they show up at the buffet exactly the way they show up in their lives. That's such an interesting point. It's kind of a fun thing to think about. Like, oh, here I am. I'm eating Aldesco again. You know, I'm cramming food in my mouth while not paying attention at all to it. And then an hour later, I think I'm hungry. Well, it's because I didn't actually enjoy what I ate. So am I doing that anywhere else in my life? Am I rushing through things? Am I not paying attention? Am I not being mindful? That sort of thing. Yes. And guilty as charged. Yes. Yeah. Well, Lisa, this has been really fun and interesting. And I hope that folks are going to take what you have to say to heart. So we'll make sure to put your information in the show notes if folks want to get in touch with you. But thank you so much for stopping by and chatting with us. This has been great. I look forward to following you more. And I really 
just find it so interesting that I finally made this connection between like nonprofits and health coaching. It's like, oh, that just feels so good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, it it's so needed. I mean, I just, I think so many of my nonprofit friends really are burning out in part because they're, you know, they're not taking care of themselves or th- their health, their families, their relationships, their own emotional health. And so I think if we as a nonprofit sector want to continue to hold on to the best and the brightest for a long time, then we ne- really need to shift the way that we do the work. Yeah. And I think a- another thing to bring up in, t- in this is that for a long time, the funding model has very much been, well, we'd love to give you money for your program, but now we don't really want to support things like employee benefits and, and you know, any kind of capacity building or professional development is much harder to fund. You know, general operating is very difficult to find money for. And ultimately, that's where a systemic change will come around is when funders recognize that if these people are burning out, the constant burnout and the constant turnover are a liability because we know when we hire in the nonprofit world, very often it is to have someone pick up all the pieces that should have been done all along rather than take on something new. So when you hire somebody new, that person has to get up to speed. They have to be trained. And what do they end up doing? They end up picking all the pieces up that somebody wasn't able to do because he or she was stretched too thin. And you're still not building your capacity to do more. Yeah. So yeah. It's just so that true. Idea that, you know, funders need to get involved. Yep. Totally agree with you. That We can have another conversation another time about that. Let's do it. I have thoughts. Okay. <laughs> very good. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks. 